the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m., it is a Wednesday, the 14th of November, and welcome. Good to have you with us for another edition of Lifeline. We are, of course, here Monday through Friday addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Well, on today's program, um, we're going to be dealing with much of the tragedy that we've literally been surrounded by, both to the north and south of us. Coming up a little bit later on in tonight's first hour of the program, Alistair Begg from Truth For Life will join us. Um, One of the big things I think that all of us struggle with when we see vast devastation and more troubling, the loss of life we begin to grapple with the why God questions and the where God questions. And in the midst of all of this, where is the hand of God? Alistair Begg is going to join us to help answer that question from a biblical perspective. He'll be with us coming up tonight at about 530. As we lead off this evening, of course, uh, fires continue to grow and um, wreak devastation both to the north and south of us. We here in the San Francisco Bay Area know this. Much of the um, haze that you're seeing all around the Bay Region is coming from the campfire north of us that um, so far has destroyed upwards of 7,000 buildings, most of them residences. The death toll as of this hour stands at 50, 48 at the campfire to the north of us near Paradise, and uh, two deaths now, I'm sorry, updated to three deaths related to the Woolsey Fire down in Southern California. Woolsey Fire, of course, has been uh, particularly difficult to deal with, not just because of the terrain and the fact that it's burned more than 150 square miles, but accompanying it has been the infamous Santa Ana winds. Over the weekend, winds blowing at more than 70 miles an hour, hampering the efforts of firefighters everywhere. And, of course, with a number of areas that have been threatened, from Thousand Oaks, Westlake Village, Agora Hills, where Johnny and friends, by the way, have their headquarters, one of the other big communities terribly devastated by all of this has been the coastal town of Malibu. Joining me now from Pepperdine University, located in a beautiful spot in Malibu, is Pete Peterson. He, of course, is the dean of the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine. And Pete, glad to have you join us today. And um, first off, tell us how are you doing? What about staff? I know that not only did the fire come perilously close to the university over the weekend, but in fact, at one point, uh, damaged a number of uh, outbuildings on the property. Yeah, that's right, Craig. And it's great to be with you, too. I'm actually speaking to you here from Pepperdine University's Uh, campus in West Los Angeles as the entire campus uh, was evacuated and is uh, still closed, in fact, inaccessible. 
the two major roads into campus, Malibu Canyon Road and Pacific Coast Highway, uh, remain closed. And so uh, all of our faculty, staff, and students here at the Graduate Policy School uh, are working remotely and from various uh, points all over the Southland. So. Boy, uh, that certainly makes it difficult and challenging, uh, to be sure. Uh, what's the student body population look like, and how many were there, do you know, on campus the night uh, that this really began to take off? Yeah, overall, as a two-year graduate program, we're about, uh, we usually range between 80 and 100 students total. Uh, about a quarter of that number, about 25 or 30 of our graduate students uh, were on campus uh, when the fires began. We still actually, to this day, uh, have about four or five of our graduate policy students on campus. Uh, it is a, an extremely safe place to be, uh, but for our students that uh, you know need uh, support and sustenance, you know the food service uh, is is still working there, and obviously they're getting a lot of uh, support from. Pepperdine University personnel who are still on campus, and so it's actually uh, not a bad place to be. That being said, uh, the majority of our students um, have evacuated from campus, Um, and as you noted earlier, that fire really came in over the Santa Monica Mountains from the Valley, um, towns like uh, Westlake Village and Woodland Hills and Calabasas, Thousand Oaks, uh, where our other students and staff and faculty live. Uh, have all been uh, evacuated at one point uh, or another. I think the one thing that's that's catching everyone's breath, it certainly has been true here in Northern California as well, and I wonder if it's the same uh, in SoCal, and I would imagine with the Santa Anta winds that your answer is going to be, oh, yes, and then some, Craig. But it, it seems as if the, the, the speed at which this fire has been moving and, and consuming underbrush. Now, clearly we in California have suffered from uh, drought conditions for a very, very very long time, so it was almost as if this was a uh, a perfect scenario for disaster between the winds, the dry conditions, the fact that we've been in in drought season for such an extended period of time. Were, were you surprised, though, um, Pete, from your vantage point, to see just how quickly this thing is spread? Absolutely, Craig. In fact, last night I attended a town meeting. Uh, that had to be hosted in Santa, at Santa Monica High School uh, by the city of Malibu because there's no place, obviously, uh, where you could host it in Malibu. But well over a thousand Malibu residents who've been evacuated met last night at Santa Monica High School, and the uh, one of the chiefs of the LA County Fire Department said that in 32 years of fighting fires in this Los Angeles area, this was the fastest moving fire he'd ever seen. It certainly uh, goes to the grace of God that Pepperdine was spared. We know, as we mentioned a moment ago, that uh, it it did impact a number of outbuildings. There's been some stuff in the press saying, well, um, Pepperdine should have never issued a a shelter-in-place order. But, in fact, we're reading and hearing that because of that and because there was increased attention by uh, firefighters and firefighting apparatus to protect the campus, that that actually ended up protecting a lot of other lives and properties further down from Pepperdine. Boy, you're so right, Craig, and I appreciate the opportunity. You're right. That has been a a narrative, if you will, that's formed. But when you hear from 
the fire chief from L.A. County, as he spoke last night, really Pepperdine provided a beachhead because of the way that we have built that campus. Uh, we have 200 feet of brush cut around that campus, and it really provides a beachhead to take on the fire at that one spot coming out of the Santa Monica Mountains. And because they were able to hit the fire there and attack it at that point, they were able to put it down. If you don't stop the fire there, it runs right down the hill and into the city of Malibu. And I shudder to think uh, what would have happened at that point. But really, it had nothing to do with the students being there. It, It really is a safe place for the students. Obviously, the university's first commitment is to its students and their safety. But as it relates to how L.A. County fought the fire, they would have done the same thing whether the uh, students were on campus or not. Well, and there's always this this difficult irony. Some people say, well, you should immediately flee once evacuation orders are issued. But then here in Northern California, we're hearing a number of tragic stories where people indeed followed those instructions and got trapped by just flames that literally rolled across the highway and uh, people literally got trapped in their vehicles. And I suppose at the end of the day, um, the important thing here is is safety for life and limb. Um, the students, I would imagine, have got to be feeling pretty devastated by this, not only in terms of just the, 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 the overwhelming uh, impact of the fire and the, the destabilization to day-to-day life that it causes, but then, too, um, there has been some loss of life. Your, your campus, in fact, has been kind of in a state of mourning because, sadly, one of your students apparently was the victim of the shooting that happened uh, just a matter of days ago. You're so right, Craig. It's been a real one-two punch. That student's name, one of our undergraduates at Pepperdine, uh, is Elena Housley, who was killed on Wednesday night at the Borderline uh, Grill. And just to tell you how quickly uh, the whiplash effect has happened, we were uh, actually in the midst of of a vigil on Friday for Elena and the others Uh, who were killed that night, and in the midst of the vigil, it had to be cut short uh, in order to um, move towards uh, shelter because the Woolsey fire was was rampaging through the mountains. So it was just just an utter uh, shock, and I know it's going to take quite a bit of time just emotionally uh, for our students, faculty, and staff to recover uh, from this last week, which has felt like we've lived a year in one week. Indeed so. Pete, let me pivot briefly, if I can, to your area, your field of expertise in the arena of public policy, and certainly one of the things that we've heard bantied about almost since the fires began, and that is this question of, well, uh, forest management, uh, dealing with underbrush, uh, old growth, things of this sort, uh, certainly there's been fingers pointed in all directions. Is this uh, PG&E responsible for the fires? Um, what about the management of both federal and state forest? lands, things of this nature. Given the number of events that we have had from the Santa Rosa fires a year ago, October, north of us to um, more recently the Car Fire in Redding last August, and now these two major conflagrations both in North and Southern California, is it time for our state and the people of California to sit down and have some real serious conversation about not only where we build, but how we prepare for events like this? Yeah, you know, it it feels so raw. It's almost as if we don't want to have the policy discussion. But you're right, Craig. Uh, There is a lot of public policy involved here. And unfortunately, there's been some 
bad public policy as it relates to uh, forest management. I think there really is some truth to the fact that better uh, policies in taking out uh, dead woods and uh, cutting um, brush cuts around buildings and other places um, really would have an impact on the uh, on the really the the strength of these fires and how quickly they move through. I think housing policy also has to be discussed. You just mentioned the uh, conversation about where we build. I, I know here in Malibu uh, that that's going to be a major discussion about where uh, Malibu rebuilds in light of all the houses that have been lost. And certainly when you look at issues of uh, what that construction looks like, I know for Pepperdine, uh, we have to build uh, our structures with uh, flame retardant materials. And obviously the way that we've designed the campus is meant to be a fire break to prevent fires from running through campus. All of those policies were tested and, and found to have saved uh, the campus on Friday night. And so uh, for the rest of the residential houses that are built, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of discussion around not only where we build, uh, but how we build in these fire-prone areas. One of the big points of discussion that certainly was initiated well before these current events relates to uh, public policy as it comes to environment and environmental protections. Certainly, uh, we're concerned about everything from greenhouse gases to uh, smog and the effects of same, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at the end of the day, though, some have argued that we have been so over the top when it comes to, quote-unquote, protecting these natural resources, and we've seen many on the extreme end of the environmental movement is saying you don't dare touch these old growth redwoods yes. because they're 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 treasures they're historical monuments and at the end of the day instead of thinning them out in order to reduce the possibility of these types of fires we protect them what happens then nature steps in and claims them claims lives and you don't even have the opportunity to say well at least we got to be able to to use the benefit of the timber when it was all said and done so it, it, this issue i guess at, at at many levels in terms of of public policy, to a great degree, also gets laid at the feet of of some short-sighted people that that I think maybe have wonderfully altruistic ideas when it comes to the environment, but have a horrific understanding of the mechanics of how this all works. You're right, Craig. And if we want to talk about greenhouse gases that impact the environment, just look at what these fires have caused. Yeah, uh, I, I think everybody has seen the these these huge plumes of smoke that have run through not only the the campfire photos which are just so disturbing but obviously the Woolsey and the hill fires down in our area i was just speaking with the dean of our graduate business school here and he showed me some pictures uh, he happens to live off campus in malibu it is breathtaking uh, and i mean that literally as well as figuratively uh what what if we don't make these decisions around how we manage our forests? Uh, the implications actually even to the environment can be worse. Um, and so we, we teach at the policy school all the time uh, issues of uh, adverse consequences. And, um, you know, we really need to be thinking about that as it retain, uh, pertains to 
environmental policy. This is no doubt a topic that hopefully you and I will get a chance to uh, engage in a little bit more in depth uh, when we get this current event uh, behind us, because it, again, does raise some very serious issues that we in California need to grapple with. I mean, it's one thing to pound our chest in pride and say, look, we didn't deforest and we saved all the trees and they add oxygen to the air. Yeah. And in the process, in the wake of the tragedies of the last couple of days in both Southern and Northern California, we have added millions of pounds of carbon particles into the environment. And for every one car we take off the road, we probably had the equivalent of, of 150. It's, it's a tragedy at many levels and, and one that certainly I think ought to, while this is fresh in our minds, force us to finally once and for all give some serious thought to how we approach these issues as Californians. Pete, I appreciate under the stress that uh, you and the staff and the students are facing um, at this moment for you to carve some time out to give our listeners here in Northern California an update as to what has been going on both at the campus and with the student body. Know that uh, we have you in mind. We've been praying for you and uh, will continue to do so um, even as the Woolsey Fire at this time is only 47% contained. So we again thank you so much for your time and uh, hang in there. Will do, Craig, and thanks so much for your prayers. It's really so important. We all feel it down here, so thank you. All right. There is Pete Peterson. He is, again, the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and I would just, as as we have urged you over the last several days, to remain in prayer for them, uh, facing a lot of issues, uh, to be sure. Um, Pepperdine.edu, more information about the great work that they do, and um, pray that this comes to a, a very rapid and for all of us, uh, before there's any more tragic loss of life, 520. Traffic now, an update. Here is Michael Bennett. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Certainly we can talk a lot about um, all of the facts and figures and uh, the mechanics of the tragedies of the last uh, several days, both in Southern and Northern California. Um, But at the end of the day, the real arena that will grant us insight um, and a roadmap for the future is to understand the spiritual dynamic behind all of this. And uh, there are certainly, for as many questions as this raises, there are important um, theological and scriptural lessons to be learned. Alice Trebeg is going to join us to discuss that coming up in a few moments. Um, you know, we, we raise the questions about why God, where God. Um, they're not always easy answers, but certainly there are ways in which we can find God's care in all of life's circumstances. This may seem to be very random. It's a lot less random than you think. We'll talk about the hand of God in these circumstances. Alistair Begg joins us coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. Well, if the events of the last um, several days haven't driven you to um, become more earnest about prayer, then I don't know what else you need. Certainly, the trends that we're watching in our nation, morally, spiritually, politically, uh, now environmentally, uh, with the tragic loss of property, and worse so, the, the more tragic loss of life ought to drive all believers to become more serious about this matter of being in prayer before God. A couple that have been on the front lines of beating the drum of the importance of this for a long time now, Alan and Shirley Sherman, founders of Yes, I Will Pray. Co-pastors are also marriage and family counselors and authors, composers, you name it. They've about done it all in ministry. And uh, great to have you guys on the phone. Thank well, you, Craig. Thank you it's great to be back. 
Wow. Um, Shirley, let me first start with you. Um, As I mentioned in my remarks, the events of the last several weeks here from the elections dovetailing into what's happening now with these tragic wildfires in California uh, ought to have every Californian, every American saying, God, uh, what memo did we miss here and really be driven to get on our knees before the Lord? Would you agree? Oh, there's no question about it. And I think what this particular series of events and situations that have come about in these last few weeks, I think what it has really shown to us is how important it is for the very thing that I used to tell my kids. We perform the way we practice. And it's it's one of those things that it, to to start to pray for something when a tragedy begins is probably not the best way to do it, because it's kind of like getting a security system in your home after you got robbed. You know, you really you really need, and we all need to be having much more concerted time in prayer. That's why Paul said, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? That means that we need to be praying, and in a spirit and an attitude of prayer about everything. We're kingdom people. We're not earth people. We're here on earth for a temporary time, but we're kingdom people, and we need to be responding, not reacting to things. And the way that we respond appropriately is to be able to talk to God about it. You know, these, these situations that, are, that have just happened are surreal. They're surreal. And when you were just saying about the why God, the what, what did I miss the memo, you know, the, we, we can't answer definitively why these things happen. We can go through all of the, you know, all of the scientific things. We can look at them from, from environmentally. But the bottom line is we don't really know. We don't understand the heart of God. He said we didn't. We have the mind of Christ, but we don't understand the way God does things. And these surreal situations that have happened, they've numbed and in some ways paralyzed so many people, Christian people, non-Christian people. But compassion and breathing faith into one another is of paramount importance. And so how do we do that most effectively? We pray. That's the best thing we can do. We pray. We enter into where that person is in their life, even though we don't understand what they're going through. We can enter into that person's life simply by praying. Is there need at this time, Alan, for perhaps a a shift in focus? Uh, And I ask that question because it's, it's not unusual at all in the affairs of mankind. And we've all done it. I'm guilty as well. In fact, I'm, you know, like Paul, the chiefest of the sinners amongst you. Uh, events, tragedies, things come along and we say, oh, here's a reason that we need to pray. This is causing us to need to pray. And I wonder if maybe this is more God saying, these are reminders that you should have been praying all along. Yeah, well, I tell you, Claire, I mean, I was listening to your last guest, Mr. Peterson, and it, it threw me for a loop. We here in, we're in Alabama. And we here in Alabama don't have the faintest idea what the people of California are going through. I mean, I'm looking out my window right now, and it's pouring rain. It's chilly and pouring rain. We don't have 70-mile-an-hour Santa Ana winds. We don't have a drought. We don't have all the things that the people are suffering from. And you know what? It's awful hard for us to have a lot of empathy for the people there because we're not there. The reason we started Yes, I Will Pray years ago, on your show, by the way, is because it gives an opportunity for people to enter in. It gives an opportunity for people sitting in their own home all over the world. We have thousands of dedicated prayer warriors now all over the world for Yes, I Will Pray. And when a prayer request comes and 
it goes through the computer and it shows up on their computer and it gives them an opportunity to enter in. It gives them an opportunity to pray for someone who they don't know. It gives them an opportunity to have some empathy for someone who is going through something that they don't understand, that never understand it, unless they're living it, they'll never understand it. You know? I mean, we drove by a home today that was on fire on the way to Huntsville, and the fire department was there putting the fire out. And I told Shirley, imagine 10,000 times that, mm. if you could possibly imagine that. That's what those poor people are going through. And we as the body of Christ do, yes, I will pray, have the opportunity to have corporately. You know, one puts a thousand, two puts ten thousand. How many does ten thousand put to flight? How many does twenty thousand put to flight? To be able to lift these people up in prayer. You know, the Bible says, give and it shall be given. It doesn't always mean money. You pray for someone who you don't know, and then someday when you have a need, and maybe it's Monday and church doesn't need till Sunday, and something drastic happens in your life, and you can go to your computer and you can enter your prayer request, and boom, it, it's immediately sent to thousands of people through our International Prayer Cafe, and they start lifting you up to the Father, to the one who does have the answer, to the one who does understand what you're going through. Uh, it's just an amazing process. Well, and I think, you know, that, that goes to the notion of, you know, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I've always found the language there very interesting, that there is a sense of being compelled at all of this. And so lifting each other up in prayer goes to the heart of that notion. I think, too, beyond, as you point out, Alan, uh, praying for each other, carrying each other's burdens, encouraging each other, uh, going before the throne of grace on behalf of others, that we all go through our day-to-day events. Uh, you know, we lose a job. We have been diagnosed with cancer. We're dealing with, uh, you know, uh, some other personal tragedy. But then I think the 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 thirty thousand foot high perspective on this to understand that it's not just the power of corporate prayer to move the hand of God in dealing with individual needs, but the bigger, broader thing here. And, and uh, you know, the, the three of us have spent a lot of time together collectively on on the radio here down through the years, and we've talked about uh, what's going on in the nation spiritually. We've talked about uh, the paradigm shifts in this nation, uh, certainly culturally, morally. Um, and, and at the end of the day, for me, I think the compelling thing is we look at these kinds of tragedies and say in, in every case, it ought to once again be a critical and key reminder that we need to be in that, that attitude of prayer, as Paul said, uh, without ceasing, and that this is something that we need to take far more seriously than perhaps uh, until now we have. That's exactly right. And you know something? Once we started, yes, I will pray. It was the most humbling thing that I've ever seen. Because you think you have problems. You think there's stuff going on in your life. When you see these prayer requests come from people all over the world and see what these people are going through, you know, when someone sends something in and says, I just lost my house in a fire, I lost this, I lost it. It's just unimaginable. You know, it's so humbling. You know, that we have an opportunity to reach the Father for these people and to try to help them spiritually, you know. And certainly, you know, she... she it was her idea in the very beginning to do it, and it's just been a wonderful thing. Let's uh, let's talk a bit about uh, how people can get better engaged. I understand that the perspective here, Sherry Lee, is to really kind of take this ministry and the clarion call to corporate prayer to the next level. So with that notion in mind, w- where do you envision this going, and how can people get involved? Well, the first thing that happens is because we are 
we started basically on Facebook, and I know there have been a lot of complaints about Facebook, and I've been one of the ones who's not happy about all of it, but you know, God will use something that man may have meant for some other way, but he says, wait a minute, I'm going to turn something around here. And it started right there on Facebook. So if you want to join, yes, I will pray. And when I say join, I mean join, because I'm not going to let every single person in, somebody who wants to pray to Allah or, you know, be, bring in their Hinduism or whatever it is they want to do that is outside of Jesus. That's not going to be on, yes, I will pray. But if you want to join, yes, I will pray, and you believe Jesus answers prayer, you believe he is the Son of God, then I will tell you right now, you are qualified to be on Yes, I Will Pray. So you come and you join us on Yes, I Will Pray on Facebook, and it starts with the word yes. It's a declaration, which is awesome. Yes, I will pray. And it started right right here where we are, talking to you. That night we were supposed to be on for like 10 minutes or something like that. I think we were on the full two hours where thousands of people started signing up. When that whole thing was over that very first time, I remember saying to God, what in the world do we do now? It's over. It was one event, and God said, I never told you to stop praying, and that's how it started, when mm. we began to pray one for another. So, next level, we're going to from here, we're going to start ministering in churches, we're going to start ministering around the world, and going out to where we know that we can gather people to become a part of this. You talk about building a wall? Honey, we're building a wall. We are building a wall of praise that is going to wrap itself around the people who want to become a part of his family, and there is going to be a place of safety. You heard Donnie Rambo's song, I Run to the Rock. Well, we're going to be that. We're going to be in that rock, that rock wall that's going to be wrapped around the world in prayer. That's where this is going, and I'm so excited about it. I mean, I never dreamed that this is where I was going to be at this point in my life, that I would have this and that Alan and I would be doing this, and this would be the, the, the passion that bubbles up inside of us, but it is, and everywhere we go, we talk about it. Everywhere we go. There's no place that we go that we don't tell people, whatever you're going through, we're going to take it to Yes, I Will Pray, and we're going to take it to God as a group. Being corporately involved, that means unity, unity, where two agree as touching anything in my name, it shall be done of my Father who is in heaven. And if you've got a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, I've got a million people goal to be a part of Yes, I Will Pray. And that's just the low end. Well, that's uh, that's certainly very exciting to hear. And I, and I think it helps to also underscore for all of us uh, the urgency here that, you know, as oftentimes we speak National Day of Prayer, we kind of get that sense, well, we as a nation come together corporately and we pray. And it's one and done until next year. If what we are witnessing, and, and, and let those with ears to hear hear and those with eyes to see to see, if what we are witnessing in our nation politically, spiritually, morally, environmentally with these fires um, is any indication, then what, what is needed here is not a one-and-done event, but it's an entire movement. And I think that really is behind the, the heart and spirit of Yes, I Will Pray, now, they are looking for volunteers to take things to the next level. There are a process right now taking place to get a website up and running soon. Meanwhile, I want to encourage you to engage, to commit to prayer. And, and let me be clear in saying this. Some people say, oh, my goodness, if I get involved in prayer, that means I need to get up at 3.30 in the morning and pray for 18 hours straight every day. Yeah, it would be nice, but no. It's simply a matter of committing to pray, pray every day, 
Pray honestly, sincerely, earnestly, not with fancy, flowerly words, but rather just to make the commitment every day to go before the throne of grace, to bring petitions for others in need, for many of the issues that we see before us, whether we're talking about the current tragedy of the loss of life of the California wildfires to praying for the leadership of our nation, um, it's critical that we get involved at multiple levels and see this, as I say, not as a one and done, but as a movement. You can uh, get more information right now until the website's ready to go uh, by going to Facebook and just check out the Yes, I Will Pray Facebook page. That's Yes, I Will Pray Facebook page. And I urge you to uh, check it out. Get more information. Send Alan and Cheryl a note and say, hey, count me in and uh, let's get committed. Let's get a movement started here. Because I tell you what, as I indicated earlier, I think some of these events that we're seeing take place within God's permissive will um, are, are not just single points that drive us to our knees for that event, but rather reminders that we need to be engaged in that attitude of prayer without ceasing. Check it out on the Facebook page, Yes, I Will Pray. That's Yes, I Will Pray. And our thanks to Alan and Shirley Sherman for being with us tonight. Okay, we need to step aside here because we have Alistair Begg waiting to join us. We're going to get to that conversation as we pivot to this question of the why God, where God, and how do we find the hand of God in the middle of all circumstances, including what we're facing here in California at this moment. Alistair Begg joins us momentarily as Lifeline continues. Want to get a look here at traffic right now. Michael Bennett with the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The tragedy of the Northern California fires, the alarming loss of life, the unnerving destruction of homes and property has many asking why. Why? And where? Where was God when all of this first started? And why did he fail to stop it? Searching for answers, searching for the hand of God in times of trouble is easy, even normal. Finding his care in all circumstances, both good and bad, well, that takes a bit more effort and understanding of the ways that God works. Joining me on the program, a very special guest. He is best-selling author, speaker on the daily broadcast, heard, of course, Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. right here on KFAX, Bible teacher, Truth for Life and Senior Pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. A delight to have Alistair Begg join us. And Pastor Begg, as always, a great joy to have you on the program. Well, it's a great privilege always to talk with you, so thank you. Timely topic, to be sure, from the devastation of the California wildfires to, to a broader degree, the state of national politics, where our nation is morally, spiritually, has many people today asking this question, where is the hand of God? Yeah, and, uh, and a realistic question it is, especially as you have just recounted these things, and uh, um, you are as close to the action as any, I'm sure, but uh, two of my very good friends uh, had their home burned to the ground in, uh, in Malibu, and another friend of a friend was lost in the shooting that took place in Thousand Oaks. And, you know, the first thing pastorally in relationship to these things is, uh, is I think, important to simply sit in silence with people and acknowledge that... Um, 
to be very, very quick with answers is probably to miss the point in its entirety. And um, so I, I have uh, learned over time, uh, especially in the context of uh, day-to-day life in a local church, that there, there is a time to be silent and a time to speak. And uh, in these circumstances, especially dealing with people in the immediacy of things, I, I think there is, a, there is a greater gain made in an eloquent silence than immediately in a barrage of uh, sometimes superficial answers to questions that uh, demand the best of us and challenge us at the very um, center of our, of our understanding of things, and not least of all of our faith in a God who we would profess to be too wise to make mistakes and uh, too kind ever to be cruel. So that's where, that's where we are, and that's where, you know, without our Bibles, we really have nowhere to go. And with our Bibles, at least we have in the story of life um, indications and uh, representations of those who, facing, you know, amazing hurdles, were able at least at the end of it all to look back and uh, to say that they could see the hand of God in it all. And I think one of the things, Craig, is that in the immediacy of things, it, it is often not our experience to be able to say that. Uh, it is only in the rearview mirror that we may be able to make sense of it. And even then, that rearview mirror may actually be uh, from the rearview of eternity. Oh, I have to wonder sometimes, uh, certainly in the midst of times of, of turbulence and trouble, uh, it's normal to, to ask these questions, to, to uh, perhaps be caught up by the circumstances where we literally have to stop ourselves and say, wait a minute, what do I understand of this situation, not based on my, my flesh, not based on my human eyes with all of the shortcomings and frailty, but rather based on what we know from Scripture, and I think there is a degree which historically, if we think back, particularly for people that have been in the faith for a long time and say, well, wait a minute now, here's a circumstances where God rescued me. Here's another opportunity where God showed that he was very much involved in the affairs of my life. Time and time again, we see God very much not only involved in the the affairs of humankind, but 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 literally working on our behalf. I wonder if maybe then in those moments of turmoil and tragedy, if it wouldn't behoove us to pause for a minute and say, okay, time to get focused here and remind ourselves that we're not just simply victims of the randomness of life, but in fact that, you know, as Scripture tells us, God has the very number of hairs on our heads counted. He cares so much for us. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's such a good word, isn't it? And one of the questions that or one of the ways that I often try and figure things is I say, well, you know, how does this how does this narrative work, for example, in the life of the Lord Jesus? And of course, you know, at the very center of the Christian faith is not a God on a deck chair, but is is a God on a cross, is a God who is despised and rejected, who's aware of suffering, um, who 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 has all hell thrown against him, and. Uh, and and the evil of of a rebellious world comes down upon his head, and and the picture from the enemy camp is now we've finished him, now we've silenced him, 
And out of the rubble of that and out of the ignominy of that comes the triumph of the resurrection. And of course, you know, the story of the Bible, the, the narrative of the Bible is that we do live in a fallen world. And that, you know, when you read the early chapters of Genesis, uh, the, the judgment of God on the rebellion of man is that there will be thorns and there will be thistles and, and that you will work in the sweat of your brow and childbearing will be painful. And in other words, things are out of kilter. And the evidence of things being out of kilter is revealed not only in the microcosm of individual life and family life, but also in a macro uh, picture in, in the state and the, the evolution and the groanings and the creakings even of uh, the order of creation itself. And again, the Bible speaks to that. It says, you know, the, the, the whole of creation groans in travail, waiting for the redemption of the sons of man. So that the picture of, 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 of Christian faith is not in, in a redeemed universe as a result of our commitment to ecology and everything else, but is in a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. Now, that may not seem particularly helpful to somebody who's just standing in the burning embers of their home. But at least it is a narrative that, that is not left with the predicament of uh, a random world, a change universe, and absolute helplessness and cluelessness with no parameters and no boundaries and no borders and no meaning at all. And so um, as hard as it is and as difficult as it is, um, the, the Bible will at least help us. And how fascinating to note in the, the history of mankind that it seems to be not in the times of glee and celebration when everything is going our way that we, we um, desperately seek after God, but rather in those difficult moments and experiences, the groaning and creaking, as you say, that, that comes to life. Uh, maybe it is the tragedy of terrible wildfires. Maybe it's the loss of a child. Maybe it's a spouse that's run off. Whatever the circumstances might be, we know certainly from Scripture that it rains on both the the just and the unjust, and yet isn't it interesting to note that it is in those most difficult moments that we travail the most trying to connect with God and find the hand of God, and maybe therein lies some degree of of, of, of clue as to the way God uses these circumstances for his own glory, in that in that middle of travail and tragedy, we can find God present, and ultimately he can lead us to triumph. Yeah, I think that is so good, isn't it? And, you know, we hear Romans eight twenty eight, you know, um, quoted sometimes helpfully and sometimes banded about, you know, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, you know, have been called according to his purpose. And and that little preposition is important, you know, in and then all things, in all things. And it is not that he works above them or around them or despite them, but in them. And, uh, you know, the, the, as, as much of a challenge as that is to our... Um, to our theology, at least it is to, to again, uh, understand that when God thinks in terms of what is good, 
he's not thinking necessarily in terms of our prosperity or our security or our longevity, but he's thinking about what it means for those whom he has uh, called to himself to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he uses, if you like, the good, the bad, and the ugly in our lives in order to achieve that ultimate good. You refer to this, Alistair, as a kitchen verse theology, which I thought was interesting, and I have to wonder, is this one of those, as often as Romans 8.28 is quoted, is this one of those conditional promises? Because I noticed that it is very distinct here in saying that God does, you know, works together for good all those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. So it sounds like there's, there's some balance here that we need to strike, isn't there? Well, yes, there is. You know, I mean, we have we have the the, the instruction of of God's word that that God loves the world. He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. That we know God uh, um, by creation. We know God as He has revealed Himself in creation and by way of conscience. But when um, we discover what it means to know God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about something that has to do with a very personal acquaintance as a result not now of creation, but of Christ's work of redemption, and that God has a peculiar interest in and a particular purpose for uh, those whom he has redeemed. The mistake that we seem to make is that somehow or another, we then, as believers, uh, seek to translate that into a kind of, well, shall we be uh, transported through to, to through the skies on flowery beds of ease? And you come across these believers who suggest that, you know, believing in Jesus is a panacea for all ills. You know, it never hurts at the dentist. You never get cancer. You get A's in all your exams. Your children are all beautiful. Your Christmas letters are always full of, you know, exotic stories. When in point of fact, that isn't true to the Bible, nor is it true to human experience. And, and it, doesn't do, it doesn't do anything for the person who is uh, trying to w- dra- drag herself on their way home from work and, and, and catching a bus in downtown San Francisco and figuring out how they're going to pay their rent and how they can make sense of uh, why they even exist and why there would be a God that would ever care for them. And that is our story, to be able to tell them of a God who actually loves them and uh, who has provided for them in Jesus and who even in the darkest of days and in the deepest of disappointments is a God who cares. If you've just joined our conversation, our visit today with Pastor Alistair Begg, he, of course, speaker on Truth For Life, heard Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. A new book called The Hand of God, Finding His Care in All Circumstances, available through Moody Press. You can find it through Amazon. You can certainly go to Bay Area Christian bookstores or get more information, order it directly online. Go to truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. When we come back, diving deeper into the Word of God to find examples in the history of mankind that we can look up to for direction today. Our conversation with best-selling author and speaker on Truth For Life, Alistair Begg, continues. 
Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.